This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm Robin Buller, your host. Today we are joined by Professor Carrie Wallach, who is joining us from Gettysburg College in Pennsylvania. She will be talking with us about her new book, Passing Illusions, Jewish Visibility in Weimar, Germany. Carrie, thank you so much for joining us on the pod. Thanks so much for having me, Robin. It's a pleasure. Uh, before we get into the book itself, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about yourself. I teach at Gettysburg College. Um, I am an associate professor in the German Studies Department there, but I'm also really fortunate to have the opportunity to teach courses in Jewish Studies as well. Uh, I'm originally from Cleveland, Ohio, um, and I got into uh, into German uh, at, when I was an exchange student. Uh, I studied abroad in high school, um, and I lived in a small town in Germany. Uh, with a population of only of about 50,000 people. And, and I was the only Jew in the town. And that was, for me, a really formative experience that left me with a lot of questions about um, Jewish identity and Jewish studies. And I went on to study, um, to study Hebrew in college, and I spent a semester studying in Jerusalem, um, trying to find answers to all of those questions that I had. Uh, and I ended up um, doing a senior thesis on a German Jewish poet that really laid the sort of foundation for my interest in German Jewish studies, which is where I am today. Uh, And I also had some really wonderful mentors along the way who encouraged me to pursue a graduate degree uh, in German. So um, yeah, here I am and excited to talk about my book. Great. So let's, yeah, let's get into the book. What, what brought you to write Passing Illusions? You know, what were the questions that you set out to answer? I've been interested in the Weimar Republic for a really long time. I think it captivates me partly because uh, of the tensions and paradoxes it embodies. And um, maybe for any listeners out there who are watching Babylon Berlin on Netflix right now, that might be something that people are thinking about. Also, this sort of <laughs> politically tumultuous time, um, Germany's first democracy, but also a time when um, uh you know, despite the fact that Jews had finally gained full access to the privileges afforded to other German citizens, um, they were still thinking twice before openly or publicly announcing their Jewishness. And, um, you know, just, there's a lot going on in this period that, that really um, caught my attention. Uh, and I think for me, one of the driving questions behind my book and behind my, my thinking here is um, how people figure out whether someone is Jewish the first time they meet someone. Um, And so just what is the process of navigating um, the question of, is this person I'm talking to Jewish or not? Um, And it's Mm. obviously one that's complicated um, 
by an awareness or a knowledge that the other person might be hostile to to Jews. Um, but perhaps um, it's even more interesting if the other person does happen to be Jewish. And so, how does one um, you know arrive at the point that that, that this becomes a topic of conversation in a, in a safe way. Like, how do Jews identify each other? How do they drop subtle hints to make themselves identifiable to other Jews or, you know, anyone else who might be Jewish friendly? Um, but again, sort of only the right people. Um, and, and one of the things that I found in my research is that uh, Jews did want to be um, identifiable or visible to other Jews. They wanted to be able to identify each other to find um, community, but ideally in a in a sort of safely visible context or environment. Um, and these questions for me, uh, they're questions that were relevant in the Weimar period in Germany, um, but they're also questions that are relevant for Jews and other minorities today um, navigating the world. Sort of how does one um, find find allies, find friends, uh, and avoid foes? Um, so those are, those are, I think, the driving questions here. And I feel like those questions really marry distinct elements of German history, mm-hmm. as well as specific parts of Jewish studies. So how does, how would, do you think your study fits into both of those fields or brings them together? Yeah. Um, for me, this is, um, it's an interesting question to come at also as a scholar of German studies and not a historian. Um, so I, I really find myself working at the intersections of German and Jewish studies. Um, and, and my work is in conversation with um, other scholars sort of who are interested in both German Jewish history, but also culture, literature. Um, so I would say I take a, a cultural studies approach in asking questions about how, in this particular book also, how people um, interact with one another. Um, and I do this by looking at uh, doing a close analysis of cultural texts, um, literature, film, images, advertisements, sort of what I'm trained to do as a Germanist, as a German studies scholar. Um, but I also am looking at um, sources used by historians, uh, including um, periodicals, personal memoirs, archival documents. So I'm focusing on this specific period in German history, but I'm drawing on other fields as I, as I do my research, including gender studies, including in this book also queer studies um, and in conversation with other, with other fields as well. Right. I wonder if you could expand a little bit then on how you, you know, how you navigated these sources as as someone coming from German studies and mm-hmm. what specifically kind of sources you use to answer the research questions that you that you told us. Yeah. So this project, the book project um, grew out of my dissertation, but it's, it's definitely um a very different project than what I started out with. Um, But the dissertation research um, focused on the Weimar Jewish press, and that gave me a really strong foundation in working with um, all kinds of periodicals, um, mainly periodicals in German, but I also worked with a few periodicals uh, in Yiddish as well. Um, And so really the research for this book um, took place over a period of about 10 years. Um, If you start all the way back with the dissertation research, um, when I was doing research in Berlin uh, on a Leo Beck fellowship. Um, so I started out reading lots of periodicals, reading lots of microfilm. Um, and, and the periodicals kind of served as a jumping off point to introduce me to other things that I could be pursuing, other um, people, other topics, things that were of interest to uh, German Jews at that time. So that led me to um, visit archives that housed the papers of various individual people I was interested in. 
Um, for example, the Deutsches Literaturarchiv in Marbach is a is a big um, hub for German studies scholars. Um, but I also um, found really rich material at the Akademie der Kunste in Berlin. The um, papers uh, or material about different performers, different artists, writers. Um, and then, of course, I also was using archives um, that gave me access to um, films that are not available in any other uh, locations. So the Bundesarchiv Filmarchiv in Berlin, the Stiftung Deutsche Kinematek has both films and archival materials about um, the, the making of those films, the intertitles of some of the silent films. Um, and I also was able to visit archives like um, Centrum Judaicum in Berlin, which has um, on microfilm sort of the papers of various different Jewish organizations from the 1920s and 30s. And that, that was really fascinating to read. Um, and then once I had individual players who I was interested in, um, I, I could also sort of find their papers or materials in other locations. Um, for example, I went to um, Los Angeles to work with the USC Special Collections where the papers of Greta Mulsheim, um, an actress, were housed. So um, I, was, uh, I was excited to, to sort of follow all the different leads that I found. Um, and some of that research took place sort of over the past few, um, few summers as well once I decided to refocus the project um, and focus specifically on passing. Um, and once I made that decision, I had a new goal of finding material that, that dealt with this sort of intangible subject um, that didn't really have a name in Weimar Germany. So that I kind of set myself a bit of a, a tricky goal. Um, and it did make research challenging because I was looking for, um, you know, information about specific encounters or people um, talking about episodes where they were or were not recognizable as Jews or visible as Jews. And um, once I once I wanted to sort of also root what I was doing um, in historical sources, I was looking through personal memoirs, like looking for any references that people made to to personal visibility during this period, um, their their own visibility, their family members' appearances, whether people were perceived as Jews, and I found some material that specifically referenced that, um, in, you know, using all kinds of different phrases. Um, and I guess for me, the sort of smoking guns of my research were any direct references that I found to um, to passing or representations of passing. Uh, again, not using the word passing because that wasn't a term in use in Weimar Germany, but people talking about you know being taken for um, a non-Jew or um, someone presuming that they were non-Jewish, that kind of thing. Um, so I found a few references to those. One um, that I'd like to mention specifically is Jakob Löwenberg's uh, drama Der Gelbe Fleck. Um, that's a, a short play that focuses on a woman who passes for Jewish for two decades. And um, once her son learns that she's you know, been passing as a non-Jew, um, but is in fact of, of Jewish uh, descent, um, he, he has fallen, fallen in with a rather anti-Semitic crowd and he ends up killing himself um, when he finds out his mother has Jewish heritage. Um, and for me, the, the fascinating thing was um, not only that this existed in a, a dramatic representation um, form, um, written first in 1899 and published in 1924, um, 
But also I found a very similar reference in, in a personal memoir, a reference where someone mentioned um, knowing someone whose brother had similarly died by suicide after suddenly learning of his mother's Jewish ancestry. Um, so to me, these sources, um, in a way, almost corro- you know, corroborate each other, um, historical source and a, and a literary work, um, indicating to us also the, the real consequences, the potentially tragic consequences of concealing one's Jewish identity at this time, particularly from a family member, and also the, um, the really um, powerful emotional baggage that came with um, suddenly learning a secret like that, um, the sort of shame and, and maybe even trauma that came with um, being informed that one was Jewish uh, could, really, could really shape someone's someone's life at that time. Right. Um, and now, so your analysis is divided into, you divided into four sections. Uh, and the first section examines the, specifically the racial stereotypes upon which notions of, you know, visible Jewishness were based. I wonder if you could tell us about, about these stereotypes, you know, how was Jewishness projected and detected? Yeah. Um, so I think for me, the most important point to emphasize here, and, and it, it really does bear repeating, um, is that not, not only um, people who were potentially foes of or hostile to um, Jews relied on these racial stereotypes, um, but Jews also relied on these stereotypes um, and, and uh, these sort of physical characteristics that signified or hinted at what a Jew um, might supposedly look like. Uh, and I think, I mean, if we actually are, are really self-critical um, in, in our 21st century society today, we could, we could find um, the same sorts of things, right? People relying on certain physical characteristics as hints or signifiers of Jewishness. Um, so at, the, at this time in Weimar Germany too, Jews, you know, sized each other up. They made educated guesses about Jewishness based on um, appearance. And, um, you know, some of these notions were rooted in, you know, 18th or 19th century scientific theories, or maybe pseudoscientific um, theories might be might be another way to phrase it. Um, but a, a lot of these depended on what were essentially sort of racialized color lines, not, not exactly um, in the way we think about them in the United States, but um, color-based systems of codes that could be used to classify physical characteristics as racially or ethnically Jewish. So what I mean is, um, Jews were not necessarily considered white um, in in racial terms, but maybe some other category. Um, sometimes they were associated with with blackness, but also um, perhaps more likely with the Mediterranean region. So um, the, the the stereotype was that Jews had dark eyes, dark hair, um, also some kind of textured hair, curly, wavy, frizzy. Um, and, and the skin color might not have been quote unquote pure white, but rather, um, olive or yellow tinted in color. So, um, those are some sort of color based physical characteristics that went along with these racialized notions of Jewishness. Um, but also of course there were physical features such as the, the Jewish nose that Sander Gilman has written, um, so much about, uh, for example, in his book, the Jews body. Um, but this idea that, um, Jewish difference could be seen um, was somehow visible through facial features um, was also part of the, the idea of Jewish sort of racial difference at this time or 
ethnic difference. Um, and so, yeah, for me, the, the idea that Jews were sort of projecting and detecting it um, uh, among other people whom they encountered um, is, is something that I find in, in, in the texts that I was looking at. And I find sort of evidence of people hypothesizing uh, about whether the person they've encountered is Jewish or not based on, um, based on you know, assumptions or projections that are related to things like hair color and eye color. And so why would a Jew sort of be making these projections, I guess? Like, was it related to, um, I don't know, something sort of self-defensive or, or trying to create a comfortable space or? Um, both. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So for my, my understanding is that um, Jews who were trying to um, find other Jews in order to feel sort of solidarity or community with them were looking for um, signifiers that it might be okay to disclose their own Jewishness, okay. first of all. Right. Um, but also, um, yes, this was a time when there were um, numerous, not necessarily systematic, but numerous um, violent attacks against Jews. Some of them happened um, on the street. Some of them happened um, on certain holidays or were sort of coordinated um, by right-wing efforts. Um, but the, the idea that one wasn't necessarily safe if one was identifiable as a Jew walking down the street uh, in Weimar, Germany, um, and so one didn't necessarily want to stand out. One wanted to, to blend in. Right. Um, and so, uh, you know, just like many different minority groups today sort of um, make choices about when to uh, reveal or sort of um, come out as a, as a member of that particular um, minority group, um, Jews too were sort of using um, using the sort of privileged information about their identities and, and disclosing it only uh, at certain times. Okay. And, and you also write about how scholarship often focuses when, when discussing passing on situations in which German Jews sought to hide their Jewishness. And this is sort of what's predominant in the literature, but you take us in a different direction and you examine instances in which presenting and emphasizing one's own Jewishness was actually encouraged as well. So what do we need to know about these situations? Yeah. Um, so first um, to take a, like a historical tack to answering that question. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, for the historians um, among the listeners, um, it, one could easily sort of summarize um, my findings by pointing out that um, many Jews who wanted to emphasize Jewishness or Jewish identity, who, who advocated for disclosing it more readily, um, were Jews with Zionist leanings. Um, so Zionist, the Zionist platform was sort of known for encouraging Jewish pride, hmm. um, even when other Jews might have advocated concealing or downplaying Jewishness in some ways. Right. Um, so... Um, one thing that I that I found though that's that complicates that picture a little bit is that non-Zionist Jews also um, called sometimes called some groups were called liberal Jews, but also just sort of other um, non-partisan groups um, 
chose to emphasize their own Jewishness in the Weimar period. Um, for example, members of student fraternities mm. and Jewish war veterans um, often wore signifiers of their membership in those organizations. Uh, and, and these were subtle signifiers and perhaps wearing a, a badge with the letters RJF on it didn't necessarily obviously signify Jewishness um, to any sort of casual um, onlooker, but someone who would know um, what those letters would stand for, the Reichsbund Jüdischer Frontsoldaten, the organization of Jewish war veterans um, who fought on the front in World War One. this would be a signifier of, um, of Jewishness to others who were, you know, sort of trained in looking for it. Um, and so um, maybe the cultural studies answer to, to the question hmm. um, is that um, those Jews who chose to come out to other Jews as Jewish did so in this sort of um, delicate balancing act, right? They were um, navigating what I what I term or, or call dual legibility. They were making calculated decisions based on risk, um, disclosing Jewishness at certain times and in certain spaces um, that they deemed to be sort of safe spaces mm-hmm. um, to others who were either Jewish or um, likely to be sort of Jewish friendly, um, yet still covering or concealing Jewishness. Um, and I'm, I'm using the term covering uh, as a clear reference to Kenji Yoshino's work uncovering um, that I wanted to point out. Um, so either covering or concealing Jewishness um, when in contact with the general public, sort of as a general rule. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, and then there's the other side of the same issue, I guess, which is that at other times it was, of course, undesirable to be considered Jewish. And you give us a few examples of these sort of um, instances in which people are even outed against their will as Jewish. Could you, could you expand on this section and maybe give us a few, um, a few of those examples that you analyze in your book? Sure. Yeah. So um, I think those who, um, who, who sought not to be considered Jewish were, were indeed sort of, um, those who feared being treated differently um, for any reason, whether it was um, fear of physical violence, fear of these sort of attacks perpetrated against Jewish-looking persons at this time, mm. um, or simply a desire to blend in in order to um, not call attention to Jewishness, in order to sort of climb higher in the ranks of their professions or organizations, um, or avoid discrimination of other kinds in their day-to-day existence. Mm-hmm. Um, and what, one of the examples that I focus on in, um, in the chapter on, on hostile encounters or, or outings, um, times when people didn't want to be outed as Jewish, um, was, for example, the, the conversation about Jews in resort towns sort of um, occupying certain spaces and wanting to, to not necessarily be perceived as Jewish or a certain kind of Jewish within those spaces, especially uh, resort towns known for their anti-Semitism or their sort of um, hostility toward Jews. Uh, another example that I found, um, there are a couple of instances where um, Jewish women dancers were outed during performances or other sort of encounters um, on one occasion by a Jewish relative from, from Eastern Europe um, who sort of arrives looking very East European and um, calls attention to the fact that the dancer who had um, not been calling attention to her Jewishness um, was indeed of, of Jewish descent. Um, and so 
some of them, some of those are literary representations as opposed to historical instances. But the the idea also that these um, these episodes are sort of in circulation and um, being read and consumed by Jews during this period uh, as a reflection of their own fears um, sort of speaks to this larger question of people people's anxieties about being seen or perceived as Jewish and um, and yet also finding the right time and the right place to to be readable as such. Interesting. Um, and then, of course, I mean, you you referred to some of these methods of identifying someone as Jewish or not Jewish as um, more pseudoscientific than than scientific. Even so, obviously, they're you know, they're flawed methods um, and extremely problematic. And unsurprisingly, as you show us in the book, there were many instances in which someone was, you know, erroneously identified as, as Jewish or as not Jewish. Um, why, why are these episodes significant? What do they tell us? Yeah. Um, I think the, the most important thing that these episodes teach us is that both Jews and non-Jews bought into this notion of Jewish visibility and stereotypes so completely that even when they had kind of no evidence um, backing up the fact that someone was Jewish or might be Jewish um, or or non-Jewish, depending on the situation, um, they still were using these stereotypes to make assumptions. Um, And that that someone who was assumed to be Jewish um, might also have then been excluded um, on that basis. Uh, And that um, these sort of constructions of Jewish visibility or what Jewishness looked like um, became a real phenomenon, uh, despite the fact that they were all, um, they were all constructed and and many of them were not necessarily founded in in fact. Um, So I call them sort of episodes of misidentification and uh, when they, for me, when they became the subjects of cultural texts, such as literary works, Mm. um, newspaper articles and films, um, they were being used, uh, as I read them, to expose sort of ludicrous stereotypes, thinking that someone was Jewish simply because um, that person had had dark or curly hair, um, or that someone was not Jewish because she had blonde hair. Uh, one of my favorite um, anecdotes that I that I recite in this book as well is this sort of short anecdote that I found in a Jewish periodical from 1925 um, about two women who meet at a resort town and one is blonde and one is a brunette. And it's sort of this um, tale of, of stereotypes, right? The, the brunette woman announces that she's, um, that she's Jewish and, you know, sort of, or is, or is known to be Jewish from the outset of the story and the blonde woman uh, is not. And they sort of go about their conversation with one another, not necessarily knowing whether the other person is Jewish. But at one point um, the blonde woman says, I'm hungry. And, and the brunette says, well, how about some, some roast meat for breakfast? And uh, mm-hmm. the, the blonde says, you know, by no means, I'm, I'm totally kosher. I can't possibly eat that. Um, and so there's this, uh, there's this way of, um, she then chooses to sort of out herself as Jewish. Um, but to me, the whole thing is really, uh, uh, this sort of play on stereotypes, right? That the reader has also presumed that this blonde woman was not Jewish. Um, and is sort of tricked into thinking that she, uh, is a likely candidate to eat the roast meat breakfast, Right. meal. Um, but that, but that, that this, um, sort of uncovering of her identity also, it, you know, has to do with, has to do with the preconceptions of, um, the person she's interacting with and possibly also the reader. Um, right. and 
Yeah. So, I, and I also um, do spend a little bit of time on the fact that misidentifications took place um, on the basis of, of non-visual characteristics, such as names and stereotypical professions. Um, and I and I get into that only a little bit, but um, also important important things that were used in in projecting uh, Jewishness onto someone, um, even when there was no evidence uh, to support right. it. I, that anecdote is is such a fascinating anecdote. It reminds me. Um, this is sort of a silly connection, but of the, that joke where, you know, someone's son is dying in the operating room and, um, like the doctor is the parent or something. And everyone, the reader is supposed to assume that the doctor is a man. Have you heard this joke? You know, and mm. Okay, I it's, I, I'm telling it terribly, but we presume it's, it sort of exposes the reader as like assuming these gender stereotypes because the reader assumes that the doctor is the father of the child um, when the doctor is actually the mother. So just sort of in, in this idea of like outing the reader as using these stereotypes themselves. Um, yeah, it's sort of, uh, it's a silly way to, to segue into this next question. But uh, in your conclusion, I think you have these uh, amazing discussions of how the notion of German-Jewish passing intersects with... Um, with other fields, specifically with African-American studies and with gender and queer studies. I wonder if you could give us um, just a little bit of an explanation of some of your findings there. Sure. Thank you. Yes. Um, Well, the first thing I want to say for any listeners who are interested in this sort of comparative aspect of my work is that um, one could read the book's introduction and conclusion together, sort of skip the middle of the book, um, just read the introduction and the conclusion um, to delve more deeply into the comparative uh, aspects of the project. Um, the two are really kind of meant to be read together for, for anyone outside of German Jewish studies who's interested in, in the sort of broader relevance and um, doesn't necessarily have the time to invest in, in the other four sort of central chapters. Um, but um, what I do in, in the introduction and conclusion is connect the concept of passing uh, to German Jewish visibility and also, of course, invisibility um, to other forms and histories of passing. Um, and here, racial uh, passing in the sort of African-American context and also um, queer and sexual passing are my two primary um examples that I'm that I'm working with. Um, and so what I tried to do is look at both commonalities, but perhaps more importantly, um, differences uh, between German Jewish passing and these other um, forms of passing. Um, and th- this helped me sort of begin to understand German Jewish passing and also maybe Jewishness perhaps a little bit more broadly um, as something, and then Jewish visibility as something that um, presents itself as a form of minority visibility that is at once gendered, queer, and racialized. And so what I mean by that is that all of, all of those things matter in sort of understanding how Jewishness was read or coded or seen or perceived. Um, gender mattered, um, ideas related to conceptions of race and ethnicity mattered, and um, ways in which queer identity, um, LGBTQ, et cetera, um, identity um, might have been concealed or revealed or signified were also sort of highly relevant for the way that Jewishness also might have been coded. Um, and so um, in the case of African-American passing, um, this is sort of a natural starting point for thinking about any, any kind of passing um, 
theories of Jewish passing are really indebted to African-American history, um, which is where the term passing originated. Uh, it's a term that um, scholars such as uh, Werner Solers have traced back to um, runaway slaves first trying to pass as white and these sort of notices for runaway slaves making their way into literature. Um, and then later works of the Harlem Renaissance uh, in the early 20th century, um, such as Nella Larson's work called Passing from 1929 really popularized the term and, and helped it enter the, um, the lexicon. Um, so when we think about passing in America today, we often immediately go to the African-American experience as our sort of initial example of it. Um, and historian Elson Hobbs, who has a, a terrific recent book on racial passing in America, um, points out in her work that the 1920s saw this uh, period of uh, sort of explosion of literary work on racial passing, but the work on passing appeared precisely at a moment when Black artists were celebrating Blackness and racial pride. And this, I think, is a particularly relevant point for Jewish passing, too. Um, so Jewish passing narratives, and again, I have only a few sort of very clear, concrete examples of this, but I do have quite a number of other examples of discussions of concepts of visibility um, and representations of visibility. Um, so these, these, what you could call passing narratives in a Jewish context, I think were similarly out to deconstruct some of these racial stereotypes um, that we've been talking about, right, hair color and eye color. Um, but on some level, they're also um, promoting or celebrating the decision not to pass that people might be making based on the idea that they would want to um, sort of resist pressures to pass, or especially if they had the ability to pass. Um, and uh, in many passing narratives, both in German Jewish contexts and in um, African-American literature on passing, um, it's the female characters who are depicted as um, slippery or mercurial, somehow more ambiguous and less readable as Jewish or as um, Black as the case may be. Um, and it's these characters who are sort of depicted as more likely to pass, and therefore the ones who might be making the, the decision or the choice about whether to pass uh, or to be um, visible or readable as, um, as whichever identity they were um, grappling with. So um, that's, that's sort of how... German-Jewish passing and African-American uh, passing are in conversation with one another. Um, it's also worth noting that um, the works from the Harlem Renaissance that are about passing uh, were coming out during during the 1920s at the same time um, as Jews in Weimar were sort of grappling with their own identity. And there is um, some conversation about... Um, African-American or Black uh, identity in the German-Jewish sort of discourse at this time, but it's not, um, it's not as explicit as that. Um, I think it's much more subtle in terms of thinking about how minority groups um, might have had points of intersection, whether or not they were, they were realizing it or were aware of it. Um, and so um, I also uh, suggest that the ability to recognize Jewishness was grounded in a set of coded signifiers that in a way sort of more closely parallel those used to establish LGBT or queer visibility um, in a world accustomed to closetedness, right? In a world where everyone um, 
assumes or presumes um, heterosexuality as a starting point. Um, and, and that's sort of what um, members of the queer or LGBT community are up against. Um, and so I think uh, one, one of the things I, I conclude... Exactly, exactly. Um, so I sort of conclude that both queer and Jewish communities deemed passing a, a necessary evil in some cases, yet uh, encouraged subtle forms of visibility at the right time and in the right place, again, in order to, to build community and also to, um, to help people have a sort of healthy relationship to their understanding of self um, and to feel that they could take pride in their own identities um, and not only feel as if they were... Um, somehow shameful or things that needed to be concealed or covered up. Yeah. So I think that's, I think that's where I'll, I'll stop there. It's, it's really, it's such a fascinating book and it's obviously such a widely applicable subject. Um, the comparative element is, is just fantastic. Uh, before we let you go, um, I wonder if you could tell us what you're working on next. Um, thanks. Yeah. So I have a couple of shorter projects that I'm working on right now. Um, one is what I would call like a spin-off article, uh, something that, um, I didn't, didn't necessarily fit neatly into this project or something that, um, I didn't have a, a chance to pursue, um, earlier, but I'm, I'm interested in working on, um, I'm currently working on the art, the actress, uh, Maria Orska, uh, about whom not too much has been written. Um, and she's, I mentioned her, her briefly in, in the book. She's someone who, um, I believe was actually sort of typecast because of her uh, physical appearance, because of her dark hair and dark mm-hmm. eyes. Um, and, and almost in some ways served as a sort of, um, ethnic counterpart of, um, some American Jewish actresses, uh, or rather Jewish actresses who were, um, active in, in the American film scene. Um, and also, um, some other, actresses who were sort of ethnically typecast at the time. So that's something I'm working on. Um, I've also been asked to work on a project on the the future of the German Jewish past. So thinking about the ways that Mm. um, German Jewish history and German Jewish studies might find their way into um, perhaps into the classroom in in the future or um, how um, in general sort of uh, we in the 21st century conceptualize or use or think about uh, the German Jewish past as relevant for us. Um, And I also have another project that I'm working on that may lead to uh, a sort of shorter second book project. I'm not, I'm not sure if that's exactly where it's headed yet, but um, for a long time now I've been um, researching the artist Rachel Shalit Marcos, who I also mentioned um, briefly in the book, um, and who I think is worthy of much more attention. Um, she was an artist and an illustrator who, um, whose work was by and large destroyed uh, in the Holocaust, um, but who, uh, who, whose illustrations of um, Yiddish literature, also German literature, um, and other works of European literature, some of which appeared in German translation, uh, survived as as these sort of lithographic illustrations in in books. So some of her work does survive. Um, and I also I discovered her through the German Jewish press um, and found um, so many also interesting sort of small illustrations that she did in different Jewish periodicals in the Weimar period. Um, 
And for me, she's very interesting and perhaps also for you as well, because she was active in, in Weimar Germany in the 1920s uh, and then in Paris mm. uh, in the 1930s. And so um, she also provides a right. link uh, for me of someone who can open up a broader world um, in terms of thinking about uh, Jewish art history. Well, that sounds really fascinating. I look forward to seeing where that study goes and your shorter projects as well. Um, Carrie, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. This has been really wonderful. Thanks so much, Robin. It was really a pleasure to speak with you today. Bye now. That was Carrie Wallach talking to us about her new book, Passing Illusions, Jewish Visibility in Weimar, Germany, which is available through the University of Michigan Press. And I should say that the book itself has a number of amazing illustrations and stills and photographs. So I highly recommend that you pick up a copy in order to see those. If you like listening to new books in Jewish studies, please consider subscribing to us or rate us wherever you get your podcasts. We really appreciate hearing from you guys. Thanks for tuning in.